This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here at Christian Chapel, and um, I am right on the edge of completely losing my voice, so I apologize to you in advance. It's going to be a little more NPR feel this morning, uh, just kind of low and mellow, and that's where we're going to hang out, but um, a couple things to blame for it, my own foolishness and my own lack of self-control, so it was high school playoff week, four games in six days, and then also partly to blame for our worship team. Um, in a good way, like during first service, that, they just do such a good job that I'm over there trying to rest my voice and find myself singing at the top of my lungs. And then by the end of first service, I'm just whispering, trying to get it out. So uh, we're going to do a few things to try to help me and to try to help you. And we're going to get through this together. But we're continuing our series in Mark chapter 5. Whether you are in the room or online, we're thrilled that you're with us today. Mark 5 is the story of Jesus setting an unlikely man free who lives in an unlikely place and is tormented in ways that many of us cannot imagine. And yet, if we'll stop and be reflective, we can identify with portions of his story. And so today we're going to look particularly at Mark chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and talk about compounding evil and how when evil enters our life, it never stays there. It always reproduces, it always expands, it always grows, and it always destroys. Now, one of the, the things that Mark 5 teaches us is just evil is incredibly powerful. And I, I told you last week, when we preach through passages like this in a, a really slow, methodical fashion, it forces us to consider some topics that maybe we would normally just maybe give a week of attention to and then pass on. One of the ideas that Mark 5, 1 through 20 comes back to again and again and again is the reality of evil the power of evil, and the destructive nature of evil, and then ultimately, Jesus's power over evil. Now, as American Christians, we love to talk about Jesus's power over evil, and we don't really consider those other three things. We don't want to talk about the power of evil, the pervasiveness of it, the, the prevalence of it, the power of it, because to do so forces us into some uncomfortable conversations where we have to acknowledge there are times that I have not only welcomed, but I have celebrated the arrival of things in my life that are profoundly at odds with the kingdom of God. And they brought destruction to me. They've brought destruction to the world around me. And so it's easier for us just to say like, yeah, I know evil exists. Jesus has forgiven me. Let's move on and celebrate his victory. But what Mark chapter 5 forces us to consider again and again and again is evil is real, evil is powerful. Yes, Jesus can defeat it, but part of his defeat of evil in your life and in my life always involves a direct confrontation with it, where evil is revealed in all of its depths, with all of its destruction, and then it's driven out by Jesus. There's no way kind of around that confrontation. So Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 is where we are. I'm actually going to invite Pastor Lauren to come. She's going to read it for me today and kind of help us get along. I mean, she didn't lead worship, so we got to put her to work somehow, right? She thought she got a day off, and she's going to pretend to not enjoy being up here. Okay. Hey. All right. Okay. Hey, hey. Yeah. Missing him back there. Yeah, we are. I, I can talk loud. It's okay. There we go. Logan's got you. Thanks, Logan. All right. So Mark 5, 1 through 20. 
They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In, the, in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this uh, in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told the pigs about, <laughs> they didn't tell the pigs, they told about the pigs and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Help me thank Lauren. Appreciate her. She did a great job leading our women's conference yesterday. That's why she wasn't leading worship for us. Big weekend. Coming in, pinch hitter. Did a great job as well. So uh, if I fade out halfway through, she'll come finished as well. N notes are here. All right. Yeah. So uh, have you ever had a moment in life where um, it's just kind of been a, an eye-opening light bulb? Why didn't somebody tell me this before moment? Right? Where you, where maybe you discover a new truth of how did I never know this? Like I, I'm, I'm thinking of maybe you got some health advice at some point in life and you thought, man, I, I wish I would have known this earlier. It would have saved me a lot of backache. It would have saved me a lot of uh, pain. It would have saved me a lot of struggles with certain sicknesses or diseases. Maybe it was a piece of relationship advice. I know when we, when we talk about marriage and relationships and sexuality, every time we have those talks at Christian Chapel, there are people who approach me afterwards and say, I wish I would have known that as a teenager. It would have saved me a lot of heartache. It would have saved me a lot of bums in my life, right? There are people who will come and say, I wish we would have known that when we first got married. There are people who will come and say, I wish we would have been following Jesus when we were married. Perhaps we'd still be together. There's always this moment of we're embracing the truth and we're happy that it's there. And yet there's a little tinge of regret of why didn't I know this earlier? Why didn't someone tell me? Why didn't I embrace it? And, and particularly see this when people experience the freedom that Jesus brings in a particular area of their life. So maybe it's something you've struggled with for years or decades, and, and there just comes a moment someday where everything makes sense, and you see Jesus for who he is, and you experience that freedom, and in your first response is, how come no one ever told me? What I've discovered in my life is that in, in most seasons, 
when I'm saying, how come no one ever told me, I've been told a lot. I just wasn't quite ready to listen. Right? See, see, truth is not just about, did someone tell it to me? Truth is about, did I receive it and did I act on it? And so there's that space where it's easy when you discover a new truth, particularly about Jesus, to kind of turn and think, oh man, I wish my parents would have told me this. I wish my pastors would have told me this. I wish I had better youth leaders. I wish the Christians I went to school with were better. And to kind of blame everyone else. But more realistically, what is likely happening is God had put people in your life who were telling you these things. You just weren't yet at a spot where you were ready to hear it, to receive it, and to be changed by it. My prayer for you and me this morning is that as we look at Mark chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and we talk about the, the compound power of evil, how it just grows and grows and grows and grows, that God will come and reveal the power of evil to us in a new way, not to scare us or intimidate us, but ultimately to lead us into new experiences of life. And when he does that, I hope you have the moment where you say, I wish I would have known this years before. Right? But even in that space, it doesn't diminish what God is doing right here and right now. Now, with all that said, everything we're going to talk about today, if you've been around the church or you've read the scriptures very much, you have heard these things over and over and over again. So today, we're just going to try to use some, some different language to make you think of it in new ways and to, to point our, our hearts and our eyes this morning to the presence and the power of Jesus to completely destroy and drive out every form of evil that attacks or has taken residence in our hearts or in our minds. I know uh, one, of those, one of those moments where I thought, why didn't somebody tell me this before, was when I first learned about compound interest, Right? <clears throat> very exciting, very exciting day. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with compound interest. Okay, all right. So uh, I, you know, I grew up, and, and we'll kind of explain it at a kindergarten level because that's about where I, be, I am on that. So um, I grew up with a, a savings plan inspired by my grandpa. Get a coffee can, put your cash in it, and hide it. <laughs> That was my approach to savings all through, through middle school, through high school. I would mow lawns, I'd work jobs, I'd cash it. When I got into to college, um, I had my first job where they would actually give me an actual paycheck. So I wasn't paid in cash, but it, you know, every two weeks I would go to the, the business office at the university I worked at, uh, had an on-campus job, and they would give me, a, give me a paper check. And so my new college savings plan involved storing those checks for as long as I possibly could. So I want to cash them. I would take them and I'd keep them for two weeks. I'd keep them for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks sometimes. If I could make it through a whole semester, that was kind of my goal. Because what I knew was as long as that check stayed in the desk drawer of my dorm, I wasn't spending it. I thought it was brilliant. I discovered the thing. I never realized what a headache I was to the bookkeeper at this school. Right? Every bookkeeper in here is like, what is wrong with you? You are that person. We can't reconcile if you don't cash. I'm like, but if I don't cash, I can't spend so Angie and I, we got married. We moved to Tulsa. We are in our first like starting careers and, and we're starting a family. We've got a little baby boy and we, we realized we need to start thinking about the future. But uh, it was a little harder to save because when I moved to Christian Chapel, they did direct deposit for my paycheck. It's hard to keep that in a drawer, right? It's hard to put that in a coffee can. So all of my, my plans weren't working. I remember we sat down with a friend and and he started to talk to us about, hey, you guys, you're at the point in life, you're young, you need to transition from just saving to investing. And he started to talk to us about compound interest. Now, I'm sure in my high school economics class, 
compound interest came up at some point. No memory of it at all. I took personal church finance classes all through college, all through seminary. I'm sure it was mentioned at some point along there as well. No memory. The first time my buddy was telling us about it, it was just like, are you kidding me? It works that way? And so what he was telling us, he, he kind of used my example of, hey, if you take $100 a month for 12 months a year and you stick it in a can for 20 years, at the end of that 20 years, you're going to have $24,000. And I thought, exactly. Then he talked to me about inflation and how my $24,000 wouldn't actually be worth $24,000. And it was very depressing and kind of mean. But then he said, hey, listen, that's saving though. But if instead of savings, if you'll start to invest, right, what you can do is you can take that same $100 a month and you save it all 12 months a year. But now you're investing it into a portfolio and that portfolio is going to grow an average of 8% a year. And he showed us the whole history of the stock market and how there's ups and downs. And many of you, you've been through these presentations as well, right? You were smarter than I was though. You probably knew what they were talking about going in. I didn't know any of this. It was brand new information to me. He said, if you will do that for 20 years, $100 a month, 12 months a year, 8%, average return at the end of that 20 years, you're going to have between 55 and $60,000. And my mind was blown. And I had that moment of why didn't anyone ever tell me this before? Then he started talking to us about the negative side of compound interest. He said, look, this force exists in our economy, so you can either have it work for you or you can have it work against you. If you have it work for you, you're investing your money. And when you're not paying attention to it, your money is still working and growing. He said, but on the other side, if you get into some bad consumer debt, if you take out too many student loans, if you do all these kinds of things, then those companies are also taking advantage of compounding interest and now it's working against you. And I remember that, that moment and having those conversations of, wow, so there's a way where I can make an investment and it works without me working on it. It just keeps going. And and this week, as I've been studying through Mark chapter 5, especially verses 9 and 10, where we encounter the full face of evil in this man's life, my mind kept coming back to this idea of compounding interest, not necessarily because we all need a finance lesson, but more because evil does the exact same thing in our life. If you welcome it in, it doesn't just stay in the can where you placed it, but it's going to get out it's going to grow, and it's going to grow when you're not looking and when you're not thinking about it at all, right? We, we see this. So instead of compounding, let's use language that's more comfortable for me. Let's talk about the multiplying power of evil, right? and, and so we see this in Mark chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus shows up, he gets out of the boat, he's, this man approaches him, he falls at his feet, he's shrieking, he's screaming, he's tormented by an evil spirit, And it says in verse 9, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. A couple things to notice. First of all, it's the evil spirit speaking through the man to Jesus. He he has thoroughly inhabited this man. Jesus isn't addressing the man personally. He's addressing the evil inside of him. And he asked the evil, what is your name? Now, from this passage, there have been teachings that have developed in in different parts of the church of, hey, if you encounter evil, you need to ask the demon's name because then you have power over it and it it exposes God's authority and all these types of things. I don't think that's really what's going on here. 
Jesus isn't necessarily giving us a formula for driving out evil spirits as much as he is trying to teach this man, the disciples, the people of the surrounding area, and anyone who will read this story from that day forward, including you and me, about the tormented nature of this man and Jesus's power over the most profound and dark forces of evil in the world then and now. When the enemy responds, my name is Legion, for we are many. It's not the name of, he's not saying like, hey, there's one dude in here. I'm Legion and this is Joe, right? And we're all hanging out in here and you want me to bring somebody else? It's, it's not that at all. Legion is not necessarily a personal name. It's a description of how much evil is inside of this man. In the time of Jesus, a legion was a detachment of Roman soldiers representing about 6,000 soldiers. And so when the the enemy responds, my name is Legion, it is meant to elicit in the man and in the disciples and everyone who will hear his story at that time, the idea that this man faced an insurmountable amount of evil in his life. We're going to get into it next week because next week Jesus is going to drive the demons into the pigs and they're immediately going to destroy themselves. But, But for today, what I want us to consider is the amount of evil that's inside of this man, it results in the immediate destruction of over 2,000 pigs. And yet he has somehow been able to live with it. It's a miracle he's still alive at this point. And then when you think of the description of him earlier in the story, he's tormented. The the people of his town, of his village, they have tried to chain him hand and foot, but it says he often breaks free of the shackles and the chains. It's not that he is some super freak power lifter. He's not David Blaine 1.0. He's he's none of these things. What is happening is the evil that is inside of him is so powerful, it shows itself in external physical forces. And what we're being invited to consider is what happens to him is the same thing that happens to us. Spiritual darkness will always have physical results in our life. It will affect our bodies. It will affect our minds. It will affect our relationships. It will affect the way we see the world, the way we interact in the world. You cannot isolate it. You cannot contain it. You cannot manage it. It will spill out and it will spill over. It will overpower your most robust defenses. It will break free of everything you try to keep it captive with. He breaks free from the chains, and then he goes to live among the tombs. And the, the gospel, Mark's gospel tells us that he spends his nights and his days shrieking, screaming, and cutting himself among the tombs. This is not how he wanted to live. It's not where he would have chosen to be. And yet there is an evil inside of him that causes such profound distress that he's looking for a physical outlet, a way of release. And so he self-harms, he cuts himself, he shrieks, he screams. He is completely uncontrollable because there is a whole army of demons that have taken residence up in him. Now, when we read this story, there's still that idea of like, Man, that seems so detached from our culture. Like we just, you know, I I would imagine there aren't a whole lot of people in the room who have stories of like, sounds like my cousin. (laughs) He's been there. I mean, the the chains and the cemetery, whole nine yards, that's it. It, it. Just, we don't see a lot of that. But because we don't see it, doesn't mean that evil is not still prevalent and evil is not still powerful. What I want us to consider this morning is, Where do you think this man's story started? 
Like we pick it up when he's at the lowest point of his life. He's the worst of the worst. There is absolutely no way out for him. But it is unlikely that he woke up one day, walked out to the edge of his village, opened his arms towards the sky, and said, I'm inviting a legion of demons to come and take possession of my body. It's not usually the way it works. Now, after Jesus sets him free, Jesus gives him a job, and he tells him, you are to travel the Decapolis and tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you. I believe it's likely that when this man begins to travel the Decapolis, he tells his story in chronological order. He might begin with, let me tell you about what Jesus has done for me, but then he probably backs up and says, let me tell you about when I was a child. Let me tell you about when I was a young adult. Let me tell you about when I first kind of entered in and began to mess with darkness, with the demonic, with evil. And we don't know exactly what that story might have been. It could have been this was the way of my parents and my ancestors for generations. We worshiped in these ways. We offered these sacrifices. We invited these spirits in. It could have been that he maybe kind of stepped away from his family and and followed some pagan religious practices of his day. It could have been that he was in a really tough spot of life and he was looking for help from anywhere that he could get it. And somebody told him, hey, if you pray to this, if you offer that, if you welcome this, you can experience it. We don't know how evil first entered his life, but we're pretty confident it wasn't 6,000 demons all at once. It was probably a decision followed by another decision, followed by another decision. The descent into those levels of hell is always gradual. The same is true for you and I today. You're not just going to wake up one morning and decide, hey, today's the day I ruin my life. Today's the day I throw away my reputation. Today's the day I get caught doing outrageous and shameful things. Just begins with a little decision, a little bit of evil that you think you can manage, a a, a little bit of sin that you don't think is a big deal, a little action that you don't think anyone will find out about, a little thing that you can excuse or justify. But as you welcome it in, it's going to multiply. Because even when you're not actively engaged in those behaviors, you have now given the devil a foothold in your heart, in your mind, in your relationships, in your emotions, in your life. And from that foothold, he will continue to launch further and further invasions till he can conquer every single part of you. Now, this is not just conjecture on my part, but it's actually rooted in the teachings of Jesus. So if you have a a Bible, you can flip over with me to Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, we find Jesus talking again about what happens when an impure spirit, an evil spirit, is driven out of a person. And we'll start in verse 24. Jesus says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. What Jesus is is teaching us is evil attracts more evil. It's never isolated, and it's never alone. Now, in, in that passage we just read, what he's telling us is that you and I are created to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. And so when Jesus comes and he encounters someone and evil spirits live in them, his response every time is always to drive those evil spirits out. But the warning he gives us is you and I are not created to be spiritual vacuums. 
So when Jesus drives evil out, it's so the Spirit of God can come in. And if you won't let the Spirit of God come in, guess what's coming back? Except this time Jesus says he's coming back and he's bringing his buddies with him. Evil always attracts more evil. So if, if compounding interest, if, if that wasn't really your, your jam, you don't get that application, you know, you're, you're thinking like, that's kind of a white collar thing. I'm more of a blue collar. Um, let, me, let me try to meet you. Actually, not even blue collar. Maybe you're a no collar. Maybe you're a sleeveless shirt, redneck kind of, kind of, okay? So if that's you, let's think of it this way. My grandpa was a, a farmer out in Western Oklahoma. About 20 years ago, uh, he had a neighbor you know, which, which kind of in rural Oklahoma, your neighbor can be anyone within five miles of you. Like, they're my neighbor. They live down the road. It takes us 30 minutes to get there. Uh, but <clears throat> so he had a neighbor and this neighbor decided that he had, he'd come up with a brilliant business proposition. He was going to make some extra money. He put up uh, six foot high game fences around uh, about 100 or 150 acres of his property. And then he went and he trapped some feral pigs in another part of Oklahoma and he trailered them up, he brought them up to his property, he let them go, and then he was going to sell hunts to city rednecks like me. Right, guys who, who, who think like, yeah, I want to shoot a pig, but I don't really want to work for it. Can you pin one up, but not make it too small of a pin, like make it sporting. So, um, and if that whole thing offends you, uh, just wait till next week when we talk about 2,000 pigs going off into the lake. So um, anyway, so, so, so this guy does it. I remember talking to my grandpa. My first response was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, what a good businessman. He's like, it's terrible. He's foolish. He doesn't understand what he's doing. Those pigs are going to get out. Those pigs are going to reproduce. You ever heard breeding like pigs? I'm like, no. And then he explained it to me. And, you know, so, so it's just all of these types of things. He's like, and when they get out, they're terrible and they're destructive. And so my grandpa and other people, they tried to talk to this guy. Of, hey, don't do it. Please don't bring those in. There's other ways for you to make money. But he told them again and again, don't worry about it. I've spent so much money on these fences. They're not going to get out. We're going to, we'll only bring them in. We'll take care of it. If they get out, we'll take care of it. And what happened exactly what they thought would happen. There were some holes in the fence. The pigs got out and they began to spread all over that part of the county. And feral pigs are an invasive species, right? So an invasive species means it's not natural to the environment. It spreads aggressively. It reproduces quickly and it destroys everything it touches. And so this is what happened to around my grandpa's farm. They started to spread quickly. They reproduced rapidly they destroyed crops, they destroyed yards, they destroyed other livestock, just harmful in every way that you could imagine. So if compound interest doesn't do it for you, let's think of feral pigs. Evil comes like an invasive species into your heart. It is not meant to be there. But once it gets there, you are powerless to control it. It will spread faster than you think it will. It will produce more often than you think it will. And it will attract more people. Evil is like the most unwelcome house guest in the world that you not only can't evict, but they bring all their terrible friends with them. And you, you know this is true. I know this is true from my life. You know it's true from your life. Think of the moments when you have given in to impulses of evil, to sinful behaviors, to the temptations that come. In that moment, so, so let's just say for a moment, let's say that one of your primary struggles is jealousy. Right? You, just, you, get, you get really jealous of other people when good things happen to them. 
And it's rooted in some insecurity. It's rooted in some fear that your life won't be as good as you want it to. And, and so because, you know, you struggle with jealousy and insecurity, you think it's a good idea to spend a lot of time on social media because it's just really going to build you up and make you feel better, right? But, but what happens? You get, on, you get on Instagram, you get on social media, you're on Twitter, you're on all the other things that are out there. And, and what do you start to see? You start to see everybody else's highlight reels. You see how awesome their life is. You see how, you know, because very, very few of us are like, hey, I just wanted to post today and let you guys know that uh, my boss yelled at me and I'm probably getting fired and, and I'm broke. And like, we don't do that. It's the highlights. Here's the trip. Here's what our kids did. Here's how good the relationship is. Here's what's happening at the job. And so you begin to scroll through there and there's your family members that you're pretty happy for. There's your real friends that you're kind of happy for. And then there's this group of people that you follow on social media that you really don't even like and yet somehow they show up in your feed all the time. And as you start to see their success, what starts to rise up in you? It's not celebration. It's not gratitude for the grace of God. It's jealousy. And as you begin to give in to that jealousy and you start, you switch from scrolling to like hate scrolling, you know, and you start looking through their stuff of like, is there ever a moment when you indulge jealousy that at the same time you start to display the fruit of the spirit? Has jealousy ever led you to be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful? Has it ever made you a more kind person? No. What What happens instead? Jealousy brings anger with it. Jealousy brings bitterness with it. Jealousy brings all of these other things with it. It always accompanies it. Right? Let's say anger is your deal. Right? And, and so there's something in your life that comes up and it gets you super fired up and, and you just can't take it anymore. In your angry moments, what comes along with those? Words that you regret? Actions that you wish you could take back? harm to your relationships, damage to your reputation. Evil always attracts more evil. It always expands. It always grows. And left unchecked, it will completely overrun your life. And that's where this man finds himself in Mark chapter 5. Jesus says, what is your name? We are legion, for we are many. And then it's, it's really interesting to see the man begs Jesus not to send the demons out of the area. Now, it's, it's hard, as I said, it's hard to tell when is, when is a man speaking, when, is it, when are the demons speaking, when is, when is it kind of intertwined together. But what we see in Mark chapter 5, verse 10, is this really sad commentary on the way that evil corrupts our identity. It says, he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So it seems that we've had a shift. In verse 9, it's the evil spirit speaking, saying, we are legion, we are many. And in verse 10, it shifts back to the man, and it says, he begged Jesus not to send them out of the region. So what is happening here? Evil has created such an identity crisis in this man that he is now begging for grace for his captors who torment him. And, and I don't know about you, but when I read that, again, there's, there's kind of a superficial reading of like, oh, that poor guy, I'm glad I never do that. And then there's a more reflective reading of how many times in my life have I allowed sin to become part of my identity to the point that when Jesus comes and convicts, I want to be free, but I also want him to keep those things kind of close. 
Maybe it's that he comes and he speaks about a relationship to you of, hey, this relationship is not pleasing to me. It's not part of my plan for your life. You need to be set free from it. You need to let me break those ties. And our response is, okay, but don't send them too far away. Okay, but don't let them find someone else. Okay, I'll separate, but will you save them real quick so you can bring them back to me? You know, where Jesus comes and he confronts the greed that's in your heart. And you know you need to repent and you know you need to change some of your business practices and you know you need to change the way you think about your finances. But when he comes, there's that moment of, but that's kind of who I am. I'm the successful one. I'm the wealthy one. I'm the cutthroat one. If I give that up, who am I? Right, we, we see it in our culture when, when we talk about evil corrupting our identity to, to the point that we completely identify with our sin. We see this over and over and over again when it comes to our sexuality. Right? Not just are we attracted to the same sex or not, but where we see it is we have, been bought, we have been sold and bought the lie that our sexuality is the primary identifier of who we are. And so when Jesus comes and he says, hey, I know maybe that's what culture says, but actually I have a purpose and I have a plan for your sexuality. And it's a way where you can honor the Lord and you can follow him in it. What we hear is, I have to give up everything I know and everything I love. And I have to lay down every part of my identity. Because we have bought the lie that we are the evil things that we do. Our sin becomes intertwined with our character. It becomes intertwined in our relationships. It becomes intertwined in the way we work, in the way we think, in the way we act. It's so thoroughly intertwined with all of us that the thought of repentance is repulsive. Because we think it means we have to turn our back on everything we are. But what Jesus is trying to teach us in Mark chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 especially, is that your evil actions cannot define who you are as a person. Jesus comes to drive out evil and to remind us of our true identity as the sons and the daughters of God. I think this morning, that's a, a really important message that some of us need to hear. You are not the sum of your failures. You are not defined by your sin. Your sin might be powerful. Your sin might be pervasive. It might have separated you from God and from others. But Jesus always shows up to bring freedom. And the first form of freedom he brings is separating us from our sin and saying that might have been who you were, that might have been how you were raised, those might be the things you have done, but this is not who you are and it is not who you will be. And he sets us completely and totally free. You know, compounding interest, I was taught, it, it can work for you or it can work against you. Compounding spiritual power is the same way. It can work for you or it can work against you. For this man in Mark 5, it had worked against him for his entire life. He had at some point descended into darkness and continued this gradual slide. But when Jesus shows up, it starts to work for him. And he starts to experience the power of compounding freedom. So, so we'll, again, the coming weeks, we'll get into all this in detail. But Jesus shows up. He drives out the evil spirits. They go into this herd of pigs. The herd of pigs rush off into the lake. They're all drowned. The people that are tending the pigs, they run back into town to report what has happened. Then there's a group that comes back from the town to encounter the man. 
We don't know exactly how much time takes place, obviously, between when the pigs run in the lake and everybody comes back from the town to see Jesus. But what Mark tells us is that in that in-between time, whether it is 30 minutes or three hours, that in-between time, it's enough time for this man to get a change of clothes. It's enough time. Maybe he takes a quick dip in the lake. Maybe he kind of gets his hair in order. But when the townspeople come back, it says that he is sitting, dressed, and in his right mind. See, when Jesus set him free, it wasn't just, now the demons are out, good luck with the rest of your life. It was the demons are out, now let's get you cleaned up. Let's get some clothes on you. Let's have you sit and let's have you settle. During that time, it's likely he's engaged in conversation with Jesus, that he's telling the disciples his story. And just imagine the picture for the people who come out of town that day. This is the stark, raving, madman that they've known. And here he is, seated, dressed, and in his right mind, holding a conversation, making eye contact with them, calling them by name, responding when they call him by name. When he's tormented by evil, the picture we get is of a man who cannot sit still. A man who is constantly running from here to there, who's cutting himself. He's, the evil just keeps him at this frenetic pace. But when Jesus brings freedom, he brings this peace that begins to pour out into every part of his life. See, the freedom Jesus brings isn't just from the evil. It's also freedom of, to just be still. It's freedom to engage in relationships again. It's freedom to begin to discover his purpose again. And then when Jesus gets in the boat to go away, the man tries to go with him and Jesus says, no, stay here. And go around the Decapolis and tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you. See, the freedom Jesus gives him wasn't just to drive out the evil. It wasn't just to put some clothes on him and let him have conversations. It was also a freedom to now begin to pursue a life of purpose and meaning. And he becomes one of the first evangelists to the Gentile world, declaring the power of Jesus. And and we'll get into that a little ways down the road. It's, It's really hard not to just go ahead and preach it now. But what I want you to understand is when you say yes to Jesus, it's not just to drive out this evil you know about. It's to lead you into experiences of freedom that you can never imagine. You're hoping just for a conscience it's clear enough you can sleep at night. And he's saying, no, no, no. I'm going to bring freedom, but I'm going to change your family. I'm going to change your marriage. I'm going to change the way you work. I'm going to change your family for generation after generation. I'm going to do exceedingly more, abundantly more than you could ask or think or imagine. This is the freedom he offers. And so we must be aware that sin is powerful, sin is real, sin is pervasive, that it will come and it will multiply. It will conquer you and defeat you. But we live with a greater awareness that Jesus stands over it all. It's what we sang this morning. All hail King Jesus. There is nothing that stands over him. There is nothing that will not bow down to him. There is no evil that does not flee at his uh, his arrival, at his name, at his presence. And so this morning, we recognize the potential for evil to ruin. But more than that, we recognize the reality that Jesus sets free. And we refuse to be held up captive one moment longer. But we want to walk not just in the freedom from the things we know about, 
but in those future forms of freedom that Jesus wants to bring to us. See, I, I just, I love that picture. I wish I could communicate it to you of when you embrace the freedom of Jesus, it snowballs into every area of your life. There's no place he won't touch. There's no space that he doesn't renew. You're hoping sometimes just, Lord, can I just, will you just let me in heaven? That'd be good enough. He's like, so much more. My kingdom's going to come. My will is going to be accomplished. I'm going to save. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to heal. I'm going to provide. And as I do it for you, then you're going to start telling your story around the world and people are going to start responding and they're going to experience it. And then it's going to compound and compound and compound. And the gospel works even when we're not working on it. It's a beautiful picture. And all of this is possible because of what Jesus has done for us. We're going to conclude this morning by receiving communion together. I hope you're able to grab those elements as you came in this morning. If not, they're at the tables by the doors. But if you'll take that, open that up and hold the the bread in your hands with me. The Apostle Paul tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what Paul means by that is communion always has three perspectives to it. The first perspective of communion is we look backwards at what Jesus has done. And so this morning, as we consider the freedom he brings from every sin, we're looking back and remembering because of his death on the cross and because of his resurrection, we have been forgiven and we receive new life. Paul tells us communion also has a forward-looking perspective where we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we look forward to the day that he will perfectly and finally banish all evil from the, from the world, from all of creation, that we will live in perfect harmony with him and with each other. And so you have these kind of poles of communion, past and future. And then the third perspective is right here in this moment. In this moment, we live with assurance of what Christ has done, and we live in hope of what Christ will do. And we know he has defeated every evil that attacks me. And we know he will defeat every evil that attacks me. And so in this moment, my only choice is to receive his freedom and to surrender to his power. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we come to you today so thankful that you are the God who brings freedom to us. Lord, I pray in this moment, especially for those who are struggling with sin, who feel captive to the darkness inside of them. Today, Lord, will they sense your arrival in their life? And will they hear you coming, declaring that no matter how deep that darkness runs, no matter how firm its grip on their soul or in their relationships, that you have come to set every captive free, to break every chain of the enemy, to bring wholeness in life, to separate our sin from our identity, and to remind us that we were created to be the free sons and daughters of God. Jesus, we thank you that we have not earned this. We've done nothing to deserve it. It's a free gift that you have offered and we now receive with gratitude and joy. Lord, we repent of our sins. We receive your salvation. 
and we ask you to come in freedom and power and bring back our true identity to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You take the bread with me. And the cup. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.